Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. North Carolina native Mary Cardwell Dawson who founded the nation's first black opera company, never performed in her home state. But acclaimed opera star Denise Graves has appeared in Charlotte many times, and now she has returned to point the spotlight at Dawson. She will perform the title role in The Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson with Opera Carolina this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday evening in Central Piedmont's new theater on Elizabeth Avenue. It's where Pease Auditorium used to be, for those of you trying to picture that in your mind. Dawson's story is a remar- is as remarkable as Denise Gray's talent, and Graves has made it her mission to tell that story and to give her the attention she deserves for starting the National Negro Opera Company in Pittsburgh in 1941, for nurturing hundreds of black artists, for becoming one of the most respected opera singers in history, and for changing the future of opera. To whet your appetite for Mary Cardwell Dawson's story and the musical play that brings it to life, we're going to spend this hour with Denise Graves. Welcome back to Charlotte. Welcome back to the program. Nice to see you again. Oh, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me and for doing this story. You're welcome. I'm, I, I wish we were in person, but let's start with your foundation, the, the uh. Denise Graves Foundation. Its mission is to promote equity and inclusion in American classical vocal arts by championing the uh, hidden musical figures of the past while uplifting young artists of world-class talent from all backgrounds. Those are your words. It sounds strikingly similar to what Mary Cardwell Dawson was trying to do back in the 40s and 50s. You know what? I had never put that together in that way. Um, I, I was so moved, but thank you for that. Um, I was so moved by her story and finding out about her and the work that she's done um, and so many others like her, you know, um, that we created a foundation around this idea of bringing into rightful prominence those great hidden figures, those great hidden musical figures who have been left out of the telling of the American story and creating works of art that celebrate and share with the public what it is, what their amazing contributions have been that have contributed to our cultural fabric. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted and incredibly honored and grateful also to uh, Opera Carolina. James Mina has been so wonderful the entire time. He's always championed new works here um, that, that have told new stories. Um, and that's important. And that, that's the kind of work that we're also doing at the foundation. So, yes, thank you for, for, for drawing that parallel. Well, you're welcome. Uh, Mary Cardwell Dawson, her story is new to most people, but it's an old story uh, because she started this work a long, long time ago. And because she was relatively unknown and kind of forgotten by many people or never known by many people, I'm curious how you found out about her. So uh, thank you. I, I'm on faculty at the Juilliard School and also at the Peabody Conservatory, and I do a fair amount of master classes all around um, the United States. And there was a young woman that I had been working with um, a, a few times, and I this was so that this was just before the pandemic broke. I saw her outside of what was formerly known as the National Negro Opera Company. Um, this was in the winter of 2019. 
um, and she was singing on the staircase in the snow and talking about this and, 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 and at a building that was clearly very dilapidated, you know, run down, um, you know, the roof had collapsed, the columns had collapsed, the windows were torn out. And she talked about this great monument and how it had fallen into tremendous disrepair created by this woman, Mary Cardwell Dawson. And so I got in touch with her and I said, what is that that you're doing and who is this woman? And so when I started learning more about her, I told my students at the conservatory, because this was by that time, we had really sort of gotten into the pandemic. And I told and people were home and, and were available. I asked my students, I said, listen, I want you to sing an aria, to upload an aria online with the hashtag Save the National Opera House. And I want us to raise uh, awareness around this. And, and funds to help restore this great American monument. So that's how it started. It started like that. And my students were doing all this work and people were getting in touch with me saying, what is this that you're doing? Now, simultaneously, I had started an online cooking show called <laughs> Cooking with Denise. You'll have to check it out. There, there are lots of the episodes on YouTube. And so as I was, and so this, this was a lifestyle show that was, it had me in the kitchen speaking with other artists and people in the industry in their kitchens, talking about life, talking about what's going on in the world today, um, usually centered around art because we were all, whole world was on pause. We all had to eat. And, and so um, it was basically bringing cameras into people's homes and talking to them. We were talking during the cooking show about this woman. And I kept saying, and also this was live. This was being done live on live stream. I mean, sorry, StreamYard. And so, you know, we were talking about this woman. Have you all heard about this woman, Mary Cardwell? And there were lots of people in the chat, you know, saying, oh, I knew about her. Or I didn't know about her or tell me more. And so between the work that we were doing with the students uploading their arias, um, with, with Seth raising awareness around Mary Cardwell Dawson, doing the cooking show, it garnered a lot of attention. We had over 250,000 viewers watching the cooking wow. show. And so we had quite the, you know, the platform and um, the, the amplifier. And then Francesca Zambello, who runs, who's the artistic director of Washington National Opera, said, Denise, I've got an idea. Why don't we have uh, an opera or one woman show created around this great woman? And I said, wow, that's amazing. Sure, let's do that. And so while what had originally been sort of me wanting to bring awareness and a project to my students, and also doing this online cooking show, before I knew it, the foundation had created itself, really. Wow. It was um, not my original intention, but that that's where it, it gave birth to itself. We're going to talk a lot about Mary Cardwell Dawson. We're going to talk about this one-woman show, which is actually a three-person or four-person show. Right. It's, it's fundamentally <laughs> right. you uh, at, at the helm of all of it in, in a moment or two. But I, I want to talk about... Um, how she nurtured young black artists, trained them, employed them. You do a lot of the same things uh, as you teach, as, as you said, and, and, and you devoted yourself to helping young, underrepresented, marginalized artists find their way through this professional world of, of, of music. I would hope that the doors today are more open and more easily pushed open than they were back in 1941 for black artists, but maybe not. Is it still a struggle for non-white performers to make it in your world, in the in the world of opera? First of all, you don't realize this, but you quoted a line from the play. 
Okay. You just quoted a line that was from the play. So that was great. So you'll have to come see it. Um, talking about pushing the door open. Um, uh, first of all, I would like to say that the Denise Grace Foundation is interested in talent. We're interested in excellence. We're interested in those great individuals who have a passion and have the talent to make a career um, in the classical vocal arts. So that's the first thing. So we're not, while a lot of the work that we do with, so we have three different programs and the, the Hidden Voices program, because a lot of the hidden figures have been African-American, the organization isn't solely an African-American organization. So I do wanna be clear about that. Um, what we do is we go out of the mainstream and we find great talent. And we find those, again, those artists who are, are supremely gifted, who are passionate about this, and we help shape that career. And, and, and in that way, we sort of are modeled after the work of an impresaria, as Mary Cardwell Dawson was, in nurturing um, talent of that time. So, um, so there's, that, um, th there's that great um, parallel. But I'm, so I'm not sure, th did that answer your question? I'm not sure that it did. Well, I just do you think uh, in, in her time? Oh, that it is difficult today. Well, well, as long as we're talking about that, in her time, it was incredibly difficult. And, oh. and we'll talk about how, how she segued from wanting to be on the stage to being somebody who helped others get on the stage uh, to you, because you came up at a time when I'm, I'm sure that there weren't as many African-American or other ethnic uh, voices on, represented in opera, in the world of opera. Has it improved? Is it easier today than it was for you, than it was for her? It has improved. It is a different world. It is a very, very different landscape than it was um, from when I started, and certainly at the time of Mary Codwell Dawson, um, obviously. I will say the pathway itself, no matter who you are, is one that will test you. It's a challenging yes. one, <laughs> no matter who you are, right? So you, you've got to have the grit and the, the, the stamina and the heart, the perseverance for this road any, in the first place. Right. Um, but certainly in the time of Mary Cardwell Dawson, you know, she, want, she wanted to be an opera singer and wanted to make a name for herself on the world's great stages. And in 1925, you know, when she graduated the New England Conservatory, um, the apartheid at that time made that um, nearly impossible. Yeah. And her response to that was, well, then, okay, I'll create my own opera house. And I love that about her. I just love that kind of ingenuity. I love that kind of spirit. And she did that. And so while she did not have the career that perhaps she wanted, I think her calling was much greater. Mm -hmm. And she helped launch the careers of so many others and gave a real opportunity and platform for um for African-American artists, uh, not just singers, but uh, you know, instrumentalists, uh, composers, directors, designers, all of that. Um, and so she, she, she had a much greater impact than perhaps maybe she would have had as a solo artist. So her, her, her karma was a, an important one. And, and you are giving her her due through what you're doing with the foundation and uh -huh. with this play, uh, but there were so many others uh, along the way who are in the same position. And one of the things that you have discovered through your foundation is a lot of these other undiscovered, unknown, talented people who simply did not have the opportunities they might have today. And oh, one, of the yeah, well, one of the people that is mentioned on your website, and this just leapt off the screen at me yesterday, is a woman who lived from 1809 
1896. Elizabeth Taylor, what a great Greenfield. name. Yeah, Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, uh, one of the first publicly acclaimed professional African-American classical musicians in the country. And she went from being an enslaved woman to playing a command performance for Queen Victoria at Buckingham Palace. Isn't wow. it fabulous? Isn't it fabulous? Isn't it fabulous? And not just her, but we, you know, we've uncovered we've uncovered uh, already 136, 136 tra- mm. that have been, you know been in the game and been part of the whole musical fabric, classical music industry, the refined um, arts in the 16, 1700s, 1800s. You know, Ciceretta Jones. You know, uh, Marisa Lyka Williams. If you go to our website, we have a whole hidden. Uh, figures or hidden voices uh, vertical that will talk about those. And we've got calendars that, we ha- that we've that we done for the past three years where each month we highlight um, a hidden figure, a hidden voice, and we talk about them in their biography. And there are lots of different things that we do um, in addition to that. But yes, Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield was a- a- another one. And there's so many others. You know, we just saw that Searchlight last year did the film of Chevalier Saint-Georges, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. Chevalier, uh, who was a contemporary. Well, we we're going to say he was a contemporary of Mozart, but actually he lived 80 years before Mozart, right? And was this incredible, incredible musician. And now in this period of um, uh, inclusion and belonging that we uh, find ourselves in, and I, I hope will be systemic and not topical, we see um, a lot of the works being performed. You know, I know that uh, Yannick at the Metropolitan Opera did a a, a big thing about uh, uh, Florence Price and where, where he did a lot of her works. Denise Graves is our guest. We're talking about uh, her foundation. We're talking about Mary Cardwell Dawson, and we'll talk more about her and the one-woman play, essentially, with music that uh, is in Charlotte Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, featuring Denise Graves when we come back. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Our guest today is opera great Denise Graves, who has been here several times in the past to sing with the Opera Carolina, and they are sponsoring her production of The Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson, which opens on Thursday evening, plays Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at the new theater at Central Piedmont. They have yet to name that theater because that's how new it is, uh, but it's where (laughs) Pease Auditorium used to be for those of you trying to put that into your your head. Uh, And we'll talk about that production in depth here in a moment. A lot of people uh, in the Denise Graves Foundation's Hidden Voices Archive were helped along the way uh, by the subject of the play that you are doing, Mary Cardwell Dawson. Tell us about her. First of all, she is a North Carolina native. How about that? I love that. And I love being in her home state. Um, that's right, a very, very talented woman. She grew up in Madison, um, North Carolina, and um, went to the New England Conservatory, uh, was involved in music as a, a, as a young child, and um, found her way to the conservatory, graduated in 1925, as I said, with a degree in voice and piano, and she was the only African-American in her class. Um, and she wanted to 
She wanted to go out into the world and share her talents. Um, but she shared them differently, and she became a much more important figure, I think, um, than perhaps if she had just had a solo um, career. You know, she created, um, she, she, she established the Mary Cardwell Dawson Choir with the 500 voices. Um, in 1935 and 1937, she won all kinds of national awards. She was president of the National Association of Negro Musicians and from 1940 to 1942. Um, she established, of course, the National Negro Opera Company, which opened in 19, um, which operated until 1962. And she brought them all over the United States, including the Metropolitan Opera, at a time when there were no uh, African-American artists at the Metropolitan Opera at Carnegie Hall. Um, she brought them there. It was the first time that the Metropolitan Opera had allowed an independent opera company to rent the space. So they rented the space. Um, and then the union would not allow them to perform standard repertoire. So they performed a piece by an African-American violinist and composer, um, Clarence Cameron White, and uh, a piece called Wanga. And of course, it was to great acclaim. Um, and she took them to Carnegie Hall and had great, great success. And she had chapters in Chicago, in Detroit, Washington, DC, where she lived, New York, New Jersey, Baltimore, and of course, Pittsburgh, where the um, National Negro Opera Company is. Right. And it was not just this opera company. So this old Victorian house. And on the third floor, they would rehearse. Um, one of the difficult things which you will see in the play is her trying to find venues that would allow an all-Black opera company to come perform. But um, um, also on the second floor, she had, she taught, she had a music school and she taught some over 600 students um, music and she taught uh, piano and she taught voice and she taught languages and she taught stage direction. But it was also an access house. So this was during the time of Jim Crow. So when uh, jazz greats like um, Duke Ellington, Lena Horne, Cab Calloway, Pearl Bailey, all those guys, uh, even sports figures like Roberto Clemente were passing through um, Pittsburgh, they could not stay at the hotels. So they would stay at the, at the opera house. Mm. And this was a great, great, great woman. And uh, she, her husband also, who is sort of an unsung hero, who was a, a master electrician, but did all of the work that he did went back into the company to help support the work that she was doing. I want you to back up for a second, because you were talking about how she, uh, her company was the first uh, company allowed to rent the Met, the Metropolitan Opera, for a performance. But, but while they were in that theater, they were not permitted to do the traditional, the standard repertoire. Was that because it was an African-American company or was it because the Met just wouldn't let anybody do that on their stage because that's what they do? Well, it was coming from the union at, at that time and they wouldn't allow them to do that. Then the reasons behind it, I don't know, there's all sorts of speculation as to why they did not allow that. Perhaps they didn't view them on equal footing as mm -hmm. you know what they, what they were doing with the houses or they didn't want that comparison. Or, or, or they didn't want people to say that they were great or better. Who knows um, what the, um, the reasoning was, but they were not allowed to do that. And that there were certain conditions. I mean, in, when they came and they rented the Metropolitan Opera House, they had to bring their own box office. They had to bring their own, you know, costumes and everything. Um, they just actually rented the space. So um, I think that they didn't want any comparison. They, they wanted to be able to see this organization as something separate. Interestingly enough, her birthday is tomorrow, 
uh, Valentine's Day 130 years ago tomorrow, and you opened the day after that with the, the play uh, that you're producing here in, in Charlotte. Um, when she was running the uh, National Negro Opera Company in 1941, I think she opened it in 1941, and this play is set two years later in 1943, how large a pool of talent did she have to draw from? Because the opportunities were so limited, how did she find these people? How did they find their way to opera? Over 1,600 singers when she oh, first smokes. opened. Yeah. Right. And so I think exactly. And I love your reaction because this is the, uh, the reaction that I had, too, in learning about her and learning about so many other wonderful, wonderful figures. People think that they didn't exist. They did exist. They were there the whole time, but they were not given an opportunity. Right. And that's what she did. She created this stage for all kinds of artists. She found hundreds and hundreds um, you know, right away, 1600 right away uh, of classically trained African-American artists, whether they were instrumentalists or singers, they existed, right? And this is what has been left out of the telling of the story. And that's part of the work that we're doing is getting that education in K through 12 and getting that through the collegiate level um, through our shared voices program. So we have three programs. We have uh, Hidden Voices, which is the program that we're talking about now, Shared Voices program, which is an HBCU conservatory exchange, and Generational Voices, which is our Young Emerging Artists Program. And all of these things are modeled after Mary Cardwell Dawson and what it was that she did in her life. Uh, as you mentioned, she wanted to be an op a professional opera singer, and her l opportunities were limited because of the time in which she lived, Jim Crow and segregation, etc. And that was throughout the country. That wasn't just in the South, uh, as this play points out, because the play takes place in Washington, D.C. Uh, right. And we'll talk about that in a second. But... Since she realized early in her career that she couldn't do what she wanted to do on the stage because of limitations put on her and others like her by society, what made her think that she could start an opera company and put them on the Isn't stage? Wonderful. Isn't it fabulous? The audacity. Isn't it fantastic? And I just love that about her spirit. And I think we'll see that in the play that she was really fearless. She she was really, she she had, she was determined she was had a conviction and she believed that she and those like her had something to offer to the world and she wanted them to have that opportunity um and so she she felt yeah there was a mountain get out of my way she wanted to bring this to the people um and she believed like we believe that the denise grace foundation that um there's there should be no barriers around excellence and around art and around talent right that that is something that should be shared. And, and so absolutely, she just marched forward. And, um, and Ciceretta Jones sort of did the same thing, just believed that what they had was an important God-given gift that they wanted to share with the world. And what we have to remember, I think, uh, is that she was, I, I don't want to say pushy, but she was <laughs> fearless and strong and forceful at a time when women weren't. They weren't allowed to be. And certainly not black women. How did how did she do it? Some of the things she did was really remarkable. I mean, and 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 is well noted. I mean, she would get she and we talk about this in, a little bit in the play. One of the there, there was a story that happened when she was in a, a 
uh, a store just browsing and looking, wanted to buy a new hat. And she touched this hat. Mm. And um, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, surprise and astonishment about this woman who touched this hat and how the sales clerk was sort of trailing her, demanding that she buy it because she because she touched it. And the fight that broke out, and, and the same thing that happened with the union was she would get in physical fights with people. I mean, she was really, she was really a spitfire. I mean, she was scrappy and 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 even slapped a white man at that time where that would that could be the end of your life, right? Yeah. She was she was really, really um a tempest in a teapot. I mean, she was she, tiny little tiny little thing. She was uh, she was gutsy and she sounds a, a little bit like how Morley Safer described you when he profiled you for 60 minutes several years ago. He described you as someone who has guts, talent and beauty who with the help of your mother and your teacher pulled yourself out of a despairing inner city neighborhood to stride the world stages as though you owned them. And here's how he began that conversation on CBS. Do you know what I find remarkable? I have to tell you this. Tell me. That you'll let us in here minutes before you're going on to make your Metropolitan Opera House debut. Oh, God, now I just got nervous. Well, no, you didn't get nervous. You must, you've got to have ice cubes in your veins. On the opposite, I feel really hot on the inside, and I'm trying to stay as uh, calm as possible. I mean, I have to. It's, I can't afford to let myself be excited. Now, I want to remind folks that this is moments before the curtain went up on your Metropolitan Opera debut. Ethel Merman, I'm going to misquote her here, but she once was asked before the curtain rose on a new show, are, are, are you nervous? And she said, no, I know my lines, I know my songs, I know my dances, let's go. Uh, <laughs> is, is, is that how you approach performing? No, no, not at all, not at all. <laughs> how did you not let him in then? This is a big night for you. This is a big. It was deal. a big night. It was a big night. Um, you know, first of all, I just uh, I remember that moment, but I, I was just marveling now about how high my voice was. I can tell that I had been warming up. And my since that time, my voice has dropped probably a couple of octaves. So that was the first thing that I found astonishing. But I I, I think that you know at that point we were we were well rehearsed. I was super excited. I knew something was happening important. You know, my mother that evening had um, organized a bus trip and she brought over 200 people from Washington, D.C. to come see that. And I know that, like Mary Cardwell Dawson, that moment was bigger than me, hmm. right? It was bigger than about what I was feeling. Well, let me ask you about that, because that, that parallels something that happens in the play. You mentioned that your mother brought busloads of people to New York from Washington to see your mm -hmm. debut at the Metropolitan Opera. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, uh, as in the play, uh, they're supposed to open this opera that she is producing uh, at the Watergate, which we'll talk about in a second. Not the Watergate we all know, but the Watergate Amphitheater that was used to be at the foot of the Memorial Bridge in Washington. Um and it's, it's, the weather is bad, and they're searching for a new venue, and the venues are segregated, and many members of the cast in this play are concerned that if they put it inside, their family cannot come and see it. Did that idea happen in her lifetime, or is that your story interpolated into hers? That story from Mary Codwell Dawson absolutely happened in her okay. lifetime, and he refused. Um, uh, she refused. I mean, she, she could have 
performed in some uh, inside venues, but then black people weren't allowed uh, to be there. And so she fought that. So that was absolutely paramount to her because that's what she wanted to do. I mean, look at the surprise that we talked about just now in, you know, in doing the show and about, you know, your discovery of Elizabeth Taylor Greenfeld and knowing that, oh my goodness, or Chevalier Saint-Georges, that there were these, you know, or Blind Tom or all these wonderful, wonderful classical black artists that existed back in the 17, 1800s that we didn't know anything about. So that kind of astonishment. And so she was wanting to say that, because I think that, okay, now we're going to get into something, uh-oh, we're going to get into something a little sticky. I think that when you talk about, African-American artists are well known for being creative and certainly musical. And where gospel is concerned and where jazz is concerned and R&B, but you don't necessarily think or see a face like mine when you think of the refined arts. And I think that's really, really an important point because we're talking about something that's supposed to be, that's particularly where opera is concerned, which is an amalgamation of all of the refined arts. When you, when you think of the way that African-Americans have been portrayed in society, it's not in a refined way. It's not in an elegant way, right? It's not, it, you know, so not to say, I'm not saying that gospel music or jazz or all of that stuff can't be refined. I think it's tremendously gorgeous. I, it's, it's, it, gospel music for me is the music that has informed my music making. It's, it's where I got my start. So I understand that. But I'm just talking about in society, when you start talking about the finer things of life, you don't necessarily think or, or, or African-Americans have not been portrayed, have not been seen in that realm. Which, which gets so, back to why it was important that your mother bring these busloads of people to your view, why it's important for these actors in this Mary Dawson uh, uh, production that's going to be at the Watergate, that they be able to have their families there to, to see them, A, in a light that nobody else has ever seen them in, to show that they are equal to, better than, or belong with the rest of, of them. And also, I think, to expose people who would not otherwise be exposed to that music, because God knows how many potentially talented people there are out there who've never heard this, never seen it, don't know anything about it, and therefore don't pursue it. Mike, I want to thank you. I can tell you I can cry right now. I just want to thank you so much for doing this story. I want to thank you for bringing this to your audiences. I know that this, you have a very, very wide um, viewership. This is such an important conversation because, you know, when we were here, I, I've been here before with the Margaret Garner story. Mm -hmm. And that was another sort of lost story out of all the sort of the slave antebellum stories. That was one that fell into also into obscurity, right? And that was an important story too, because it was sort of the modern day Medea story. And what was important about that trial is that if she would be if she would be tried for destruction of property or murder, and if it were murder, that meant that she had to be. Uh, considered to be a human being. And so when we talk about Mary Cardwell Dawson's story, when we talk about showing African-Americans or underrepresented people in the classical refined arts and the reason that the Metropolitan or, or the, the Union at the time did not want um, the National Negro Opera Company to perform standard repertoire, because then there would be a comparison, mm. right? Then you'd have to acknowledge that in fact, we are more alike than unalike. And that's what's important. And that's the healing 
that I think we all want to see happen in our, our nation and also in the world. Something happened during the pandemic where we were watching all of these things unfold. And now, we, as I said earlier, we, we, we want to believe that this is something that's going to be systemic and not topical, right? This period of awakening and this period of inclusion, right? That's important. We all sort of seem to make the decision that this is not the country that we wanted to create. We wanted to create a country that was more unified. Denise Grace is our guest. Her play, The Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson, opens Thursday night at the New Auditorium at uh, CPCC. We're going to talk about that play and what unfolds in it when we come back. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. Our guest today, the opera star Denise Graves, who is in town uh, to be part of The Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson. I should mention, of course, that this is a co-production of Opera Carolina, her organization, and the Charlotte Museum of History, which will have an exhibit in late March designed to tell you more about the story of Mary Cardwell Dawson and the National Negro Opera Company. Uh, information on that can be found at the Charlotte Museum of History's website and probably at Opera Carolina's as well. Before we talk about the passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson, the play with music that uh, Denise Graves is here to perform in, I think we would be remiss if we didn't hear a little bit of Denise Graves herself in one of her, uh, I guess, not title roles, but, well, it would, it would be the title role, but also one of your uh, signature roles in Carmen. Yeah. Denise Graves, who I should say, got up and, and walked away and got a bottle of water during that performance. And most I, that's, that's a recurring theme on this program. If I play pieces of music that people have performed and they are a guest on the show, they don't want to hear it. That's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, God. One, one of the reasons that this production, The Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson, came to be was obviously to let people know about this remarkable woman and to explore the obstacles that would have stopped most people dead in their tracks, which did not stop 
her. She she pushed through. This is not this is not revisionist history, but it will revise a lot of what people think they know about that time in our country. Is this something that 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 older people need to be reminded of to refresh their memories of how far we've come or something that younger people need to learn so they can appreciate the the achievements of those who came before, but also recognize that the journey isn't over? Both. Both, in both directions, old uh, and young alike, for sure. Um, Yes, she was completely undeterred in um, her determination uh, to, to, to bring this to people. But, you know, so much has been lost in, in, in our history in general. You know, I said to you earlier that you were talking about the morally safer interview and about allowing him to speak for us to have a conversation just before I stepped foot on the, on the stage. Because I re I realized how very important that moment was. You know, I lost my father last year and he didn't know when his birthday was Mm. like, we didn't know. Because um, at the time, um, he was not allowed to go. His parents weren't allowed to go to the hospital, so they had him at home. And it was done by midwife, and so nobody kept record, right, of exactly the date. And it's that close. It's that close. So it's yeah. not that long ago. Right. And, yes, there has been tremendous progress, and I'm so proud of that and so proud to be coming along in, in this time. But I do feel a tremendous amount of um responsibility and excitement in being able to tell this woman's story and to be able to share this part of history. When we looked for Mary Carton, one of the, also one of the other things that I'm uh, supremely proud of is that when we started this, if you Googled Mary Cardwell Dawson, there was one entry and now they're over 17,000. Oh, wow. And I am enormously proud of the work that's been done and we've been putting out there and that's being shared about who she is. And, you know, if you looked for her in that time, it wasn't that she was, she wasn't covered in mainstream, but a lot of the black dailies, um, you know, had documented her work that was being done in churches and in around the communities. So I, I, I guess that what, what, what's happening now is bringing her story more to mainstream this this the passion of uh, Mary Cardwell Dawson is not an opera it is a play with music and it was commissioned right. by the uh, uh, Glimmerglass Festival in Cooperstown New York which everybody knows as the baseball hall of fame city that's right <laughs> about 3 <laughs> years ago you played the title role in that first production you played the title role in a production that was staged at the Kennedy Center not too right. long ago in DC and now you're playing Mary Cardwell Dawson again here in Charlotte has anyone else ever played this role before are you yes. Okay. Well, thank you for saying. And and we we talked about that. We've had that discussion with some of the creators. You know, Francesca Zambello. Um, um, it's always important for and particularly now post COVID. I think that whenever you have a new work that's you know not Bohem or Carmen or something like that, that people a lot of people would know that you need to have you need to have other artists who know the work because things happen. People get sick, and um, actually. Glimmerglass did it in two summers, and then my daughter ended up in the hospital and had to have surgery, and so I had to leave that production. And there was another a beautiful woman, 
Allison, oh gosh, I don't remember her last name, but um, who has done the role. And so she knows it. Um, and so it, it leaves here, it's going to go to Pittsburgh, it's going to go to Atlanta, and I think she will be sharing those performances. So, so that's really, really wonderful. So let me ask you some technical stuff, because you're an opera singer. You're a performer, opera singers are actors, but it's a different world. And this is a play uh, where not everything is sung, there are lines. In fact, you have most of the lines most. in this play. And I know that opera has changed in recent years. It's not just park and bark, stand and sing. It is, <laughs> it, it is movement around and you have to act. Uh, but when you take the music away from an oh. opera singer and put her on a stage and uh -huh. she has to hold that stage, what does that feel like? Does it feel like somebody's taken one of your appendages away? Now, isn't that something Now you have hit on something very, very important. You have hit on something super important because... It is an emotional work also. It does require, you know, normally we we sing better than we speak. And it, what I mean by that is that when we are singing, we're thinking about technique, right? And we have to because, you know, we're thinking about how we place that and, 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 and connecting all of the different registers. But when we speak, you know, we're not thinking about that in that right. way. I mean, I think that if you listen to interviews with some of the golden age divas, you know, some of you listen to uh, Leontine Price and Jesse Norman, they, they were always speaking in their head was, oh, hello, good morning. Hi, how are you? Lovely to see you. And at first, when you hear that, you say like, oh, please, come on, give me a break. But what they were doing was vocalizing. And they were keeping their speaking voices in line with their singing voices. I should have done much more of that. I should have done much more of that because I speak a lot of times on my chords, ah. right? And so that's used, you know, if you think about a violinist, a violinist is not playing the violin from the moment they wake up in the morning until the moment they go to bed. But we're using our voices from the moment we wake, we wake all day long and not in the most healthy way. Yeah. We're la I, I, when I was a student, I went to New England Conservatory, also like Mary Caldwell Dawson, but before that to Oberlin College. And I had my, a voice lesson, my second voice lesson with my voice teacher. And she said, Denise, your voice doesn't sound the way it did the very first lesson. What is going on? What, what did you do last night? And I said, oh, I was out with friends laughing. And she said, you were laughing on the <laughs> night before a voice lesson? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying that to say that we, we use a lot of the principle of the instrument and talking and laughing and eating and all of those different things that you don't think about that cost you vocally. Yeah. So there's a great cost vocally, you know, to having to perform and, and, and because so much of the part of Mary Cardwell Dawson is spoken and so much of it is emotional, right? Um, and so well, much of that has to be projected. So there is a great vocal cost, yes. And I was going to ask you about that, because in musicals, in opera, when the emotions rise, it's usually in a song, because it's easier to do it. I, I, it's more difficult to produce it, but easier for the audience to feel that emotion through the music. And this play opens with the monologue, with you on the phone. We don't hear the other end of the conversation. It all has to come through you, but it's also an emotional conversation. And she has these emotional moments throughout this play, do you as a singer wish, gee, I wish they put this in, in, in a song? Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> why, why didn't they? I would have much preferred to have sung it. I would have much preferred to have sung it um, um, because it would have made that easier um, in, in, in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's a real challenge to speak and sing and speak and sing. That's, that's a great, great, great challenge because of mm -hmm. the way that we do it. Um, uh, and, and because of the nature of this particular work, but it's, it's, it's difficult anyway, um, because we sing in a very different place from where we speak. Unless you want to put everything up in the head voice and it's early in the morning and unless you want to place everything up, then it can sound contrived and not natural right. and not what we want and not where, you know, the, and I have a low voice anyway, and I've got a low speaking voice anyway. And then you add the emotion to that. Um, and, and, and also the fact that for me, it is a real personal story. You know, this is a story that I understand, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't have to go to a coaching for this. I understand this woman. I understand this, the circumstances. It hits me in my core because it is a story of, that I know of yeah. my people, of my life. And, and what you yourself went through. I mean, you told more the world was safer about your childhood. Absolutely. And had it not been for your mother instilling in you that you were special and that you were a child right. of God and that you, you, That's you right. That, that you would not have gone through this. You needed people to help you, to push you along the way. Thank you uh, for that homework, Mike. Thank you for that background study on that. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Look, uh, it's my job. Yeah, <laughs> but well, thank you. Yeah, it's not every it's not everybody who comes to the the party with that kind of an awareness and and work having been done, but it's so evident. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for doing it. Uh, you share the stage with uh, three other characters, three other actors, three other vocalists, uh, singers in Dawson's production. I think they're rehearsing Carmen uh, for a production at, everybody knows the Watergate is the hotel where the scandal took place. But before it was that, it was a barge on the Potomac with steps leading up from the barge to the Lincoln Memorial. I grew up in DC, so I remember this. Oh, yeah. you do? I, yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm you, old, wait. Denise. <laughs> when when you I was remember? younger, they were still having concerts at the at the barge on the Potomac, at the Watergate barge, uh, and they stopped it because of the jet traffic mm. that goes down the Potomac to National Airport. It would drown out anything that was on the stage, and it happened every right. ten minutes or less. Right. So so right. they they hauled the barge away, and the steps are still there, but uh, no concerts uh, uh, take place. Anyway, they're they're trying to stage this at the barge in this production. Uh, and and uh, she's prodding them throughout this production, bringing them to life, directing them, giving them character motivation, explaining why they have to be in such a way when they're playing these various roles. But as I, I read the play yesterday, as I read it, I thought this must be very difficult to play because a lot of different things are happening subtextually and, uh, and on the stage at the same time. Absolutely. It, it 100% is a great, great and very, very different challenge, you know. Um, but I am grateful to Francesca Zambello. I have to say that. I mean, I have to say that because Francesca had the insight and she said, Denise, I've got an idea and let's do it. And so often in the profession, you know, people come to you with projects and ideas that they have and more likely than not, they don't see the light of day. You know, and this is and this is something that we that 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 she actually saw through. And and so I'm so excited about that to have been working with her on that from its inception. So there are there are moments in the play when we hear the other vocalists sing pieces right. from from uh, Carmen. 
Right. And at the end of the play, there is an original piece that I believe you sing. Is that correct? So there are a few original pieces okay. by Carlos Simon. There's one called Divided Soul. Um, um, there's another piece that he arranged. And then there's the, the, the one that you're referring to is called She Steps Onto a Floating Stage. So the, those are the pieces that Carlos Simon set to Sandra Seton's um, words. But yes, she is, um, the, the night before was supposed to have been a performance of La Traviata, starring the great Lillian Avanti, but that was rained out. And then this night is supposed to be Carmen. And um, and so she she coaches the, these young artists, um, you know, through some of the important and highlights uh, of the opera. And so we get an opportunity to see that. And fortunately for me, that's a role that I've had a great walk with. And so um, it's, it's, it's very natural and also really yeah. exciting too to see the next generation of artists coming up who are portraying those um, great characters. I have a minute left. I have a thousand more questions, but I'll have to limit them to uh, one, I think. Uh, during its run at the Kennedy Center, the Washington Post wrote, the best parts of The Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson are when the lines blur between its subject and its star, mezzo-soprano Denise Graves. Um, Do you understand that comment? I, well, so first of all, thank you for sharing that because I never read anything. I never, I, I mean, I don't read reviews. I don't read them at all. Um, and so I, it's the first time that I'm hearing that. Um, oh, that's, re that's really beautiful. I'm very, very, very touched by that. Um, I had not seen myself in the way that it, this reviewer described in the way that you have sort of characterized it this morning. Um, I have seen my role very differently in that, you know, I want to sort of highlight and bring to life what the work that she's doing, but I had never seen it sort of in, in comparison to my own life. Mary Carver Dawson never played, never performed in North Carolina. Now you're bringing her home and telling her story in North Carolina, The Passion of Mary Carver Dawson, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at the New Theater at Piedmont, Central Piedmont uh, Community College. Denise Graves, what a great pleasure it was. Thank you for the hour. Oh, I loved every moment of it. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com.